0: my name's patricia king and today i have an exciting message for you to hear
1: stop what are you thinking we can't make it look like patricia king is endorsing fighting <clears throat> hi folks uh, chris Roseberry here just want to remind you fighting for the faith is listener supported radio that means we depend upon you your generous gifts and your financial contributions To continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. And unfortunately, we don't have the the major cash resources that Patricia King does, but we have you, our listener audience, to help uh, support us financially so that we can keep bringing this radio program to you and to the world. If you don't already support Fighting for the Faith financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95. Every month of the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And there are perks to being a crew member. Just keep listening to the program to find out what the latest perk is. And, of course, if you would like to make a one-time contribution, you could do so by clicking on the donate button. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. And then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. We loved making it. We hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Wednesday, December 4th, 2013. Today we will be doing our light episode... Tuning in, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment. The goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Now, once a week, we do our light episode here, and it doesn't mean that the topic is light. It's just that I, mean, well, I usually turn the microphone over to somebody who knows what they're doing. We are currently working our way through a series of classes taught by Ernie Lassman of Messiah Lutheran Church in Seattle, Washington. This is his adult information class. I'm naming the series Christianity 101, and we'll just get right into it. Pastor Lassman does just a fantastic job, and so he's going to be talking today about the nature of God and creation. Without any further ado, here is Pastor Ernie Lassman.
2: Well, maybe we should switch gears watching the clock. I've got lots of stuff to tell you tonight. I don't want to discourage questions, uh, but you'll probably notice with all the stuff we're going to go through uh, to get out by 9 o'clock uh, will be a challenge. So uh, always remember this tension that I have. And please feel free to get up and get more goodies of whatever you'd like to do. Now, we have two major uh, subjects tonight, uh, kind of split in the middle. God. Who is God? And um, creation versus evolution. We're going to talk about those things. So you can see, wow, uh, pretty heavyweight stuff tonight, right? So uh, hopefully I'll do my job if you go home with a headache because that means you've been, you've been thinking. Well, let's look at uh, the first question. Uh, basic to our entire view of life and the world is our belief that there is a God. Now, how do we know that there's a God? Well, we Christians look to the Bible to tell us how we know there's a God. And there's a couple of points that we learn here. Hebrews, now that may sound like an Old Testament book, but that's actually in the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 3 verse 4, he says, Every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now, that's pretty simple. Um, if I told you that this structure here called Messiah Lutheran Church just sprang up over a 10-year period out of the ground, you'd probably all go home, wouldn't you? Because I I would lose all what? All credibility. In other words, this building's here because someone built it. That means it had to be designed, it had to be put together. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying. Every house is built by someone. And we might say in a teenager's way, well, duh. Well, of course. That's, that's simple, that's logical. Well, then when it comes to the vast, complex universe, you think that somebody didn't make this? That's the implication, is The builder of all things is, is God. Now, uh, when we look at some Bible passages, although I embellish, I add for you sometimes... Uh, we don't always look at all the Bible passages. So if we just look at a few, don't assume those were the only Bible passages. For example, in the Psalms it says, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the heavens means the universe. You look up in the stars you go, wow, that's awesome. How awesome must be the being who made this awesome universe and creation. Okay? So from point one then, we know that there's a, there's a, there's a creator because there's a creation. Somebody made this. Now, people may argue, who is this? And all that, which we'll get to. But there is no excuse, according to the Bible, to know there is a God. They may not know who who this God is, which we're going to get to, but that there is a God, there's no excuse, according to the Bible. Okay, so we know from the created universe... Uh, Romans 2, 15, this is the great apostle Paul writing to the Christian church in Rome, Italy. He says, God's laws are written within them. That means the Gentiles, their own conscience accuses them and sometimes uh, excuses them. Now, he's contrasting the Jewish people who had the Bible. The Jewish people had the Bible. The non-Jewish people, they didn't have the Bible. So how are they going to know about God? Well, because Paul tells you here, not only because of the what? The universe, but what else does he tell you here? God's laws are written within them. Their own conscience accuses them and excuses them. In other words, people know by nature that there is a God. And we're going to talk about that next week. Some of you may already know this. Remember how God created Adam and Eve in his own image? Okay. That implies, that doesn't mean physical, by the way. I'll, re, I'll reiterate that next week. It has nothing to do with physical. It's spiritual. Okay, Adam and Eve knew God. Now, you know what the word knew meant. They knew God perfectly. Then they're going to fall into sin next week, which we're going to look at. But there is a residue left over of that image. People know there's a God, and it's called conscience. Conscience. Every human being of every civilization and every time and place has conscience, even if they didn't have the Bible. Because God put it there. In other words, God made human beings as moral creatures, knowing God. And that's why it says the conscience of these people either accuses them, Uh-oh, I shouldn't have done that. Remember that little voice? I remember the first time I was aware of that little voice as a kid. Ooh, where'd that come from? That was inside. Yeah. Either accuses them, makes them feel what? Guilty or sometimes excuses them. In other words, the conscience can say, oh yeah, well he had it coming. I'm glad I did it. So every human being knows. Now let me tell you the most profound illustration that I've ever heard that human beings know in the conscience that there is a God. Most of you here have heard of Helen Keller. Okay. Remember, she wasn't born blind and deaf, but within six months, okay, she was totally blind, right, and deaf, and she couldn't speak. And she was kind of, you know, this very famous story. She was a very wild child. Well, why? Because there was no way to communicate with her. She was kind of like a wild animal. Okay? And then, finally, is it Mrs. Sullivan? Yeah, I always get mixed up with Campbell. And I think it was Mrs. Sullivan, wasn't it? She comes along and she starts to teach Helen Keller. And how does she teach her? She's blind. She can't hear? With hand signs, Remember? hand signs, and she develops an alphabet for Helen Keller. Well, this opens up a new whole world. She starts to calm down. Mrs. Sullivan, using this hand-signed alphabet, starts communicating with her, teaching her as a teacher. And then one day, because Mrs. Sullivan was a Christian, one day they get around to talking about God. And Helen Keller, after she hears for the very first time about God, and her hand sign, she hand signs back to Mrs. Sullivan and says, Aha, I thought so. <laughs> Did you get that? In other words, before it was ever said to her about a being called God, she already had the what? She already had the idea. Where would that come from? Paul tells you in Romans 2, people by nature know there's a God. Now again, they don't know who this God is necessarily. And they don't know, does this God like me? That's where we're going to get to Jesus, because in Jesus we know, we not only know this one true God, but we know what? He likes me. How do we know He likes me? Because He died on the cross for me. But you don't have to be a Christian to know there's a God, because you got the universe and conscience. Okay. Now, then finally, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning... God. Now, this is the difference between philosophy and theology. The Bible, unlike philosophy, never tries to prove God's uh, existence. It's just a what? It's a given in the Bible. There's no long arguments like philosophy. It's given. And that's the way it starts out in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created. So, Here's what we do then. How do we know there's a God? From this we learn, from nature, from the universe, as I said, B, from conscience, as we said, and from the Bible. Now, number two kind of ties right into that point. Well, where do we get definite? And you might want to circle, highlight, or underline the word definite because many people will talk about God everybody's got an opinion about God but this question is where do we get definite information about God and we see this in John 1 18 this is Jesus speaking nobody has ever seen God now let me pause there well if nobody's ever seen God how are we supposed to how are we supposed to know him Good question. And then Jesus goes on to say, The only Son who is God and close to the Father's heart has what? Told us about Him. Now I'm going to put up a little diagram here that you will see over and over and over during this 15-week course. And we're going to touch base on it a little bit when we get to the triune God. So just bear with me. When we get to the teaching of the triune God, we learn that there's only one God. And we use a triangle sometimes to talk about this mystery that you and I are going to talk about. We have God, who is Father, God, who is the Son, also called the Word in John's Gospel, and God, the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk about that later in just a little bit. Now, it says, this is Jesus speaking. Nobody's ever seen God. Well, great, how are we going to know him? Then he says, the only Son who what? Is God and close to the Father's heart has told us about him. What that is saying is, the Son of God, who we're going to learn, is equal to the Father and Holy Spirit. This is God. Not one-third God We're going to talk about. All God. At Christmas time, came into the world as the human being we call Jesus. Now watch this. If this is true, and we Christians believe it is true, can this man, Jesus, give us definite information about God? The answer is yes, because who is he? He's God in human form. Yes? I have a question. Please.
1: You read it. You can help me find where it's located in the Bible, but you often hear Jesus when he's talking to people refer to his father and say, That's another being.
2: Well, it's another person. Bear with me. I'm not into the Trinity yet. So hold off. Let me do it. We're not to the Trinity yet. But when I get to the Trinity, I'm all done. You can say, Is that all? You didn't answer my question. We'll go over it again. Okay. But I promise you we'll do that. But I'm just looking sequentially here. So we're going to do it. Just bear with me. Okay. The point is, he says, he says, Father's heart has told us about him. Now we're back to this concept again, too. What are we talking about? Revelation. The only way we can know God is if he what? Reveals himself. Okay. Just like in this 15 week course, you're going to know me a lot better than when you first came here, right? Because you're going to learn about me as I kind of reveal to you who I am and what I'm like, right? That's the way it is with God. We can't know God unless He reveals Himself to us. And where we get definitive information is in Jesus Christ. Now, lots of people don't believe that. I understand that. But that's the claim. And we'll get back to Jesus in lessons 6 and 7. Okay, so let's go then, what is God like? And after we talk what is God like, we're going to get to the Trinity. After it says, what is God? Would you write the word L-I-K-E question mark? In other words, I want the question to read, what is God like? Because we're going to describe now God. You know, for example, we could describe the Seattle Seahawks. Oh, I wish I hadn't brought that up. You know, uh, their offensive line. We could say yeah, their offensive line uh, averaged six foot five and 302 pounds or something. You know, you can always give some sort of a characteristic. Somebody's large or small, blonde or brown or blue-eyed or brown-eyed or, or whatever... We're going to do that with God now. What's God like? We're going to look at the Bible and say, yeah, what is God like? So here we go. Uh, Point eight, John 4, 24. This is Jesus speaking. God is spirit. That means when it says spirit, that means God has nothing like this. The best way I can describe spirit is when I go, did you see anything? No, you didn't see anything. As a matter of fact, it's interesting, I think I told you this already, the word for breath, wind, and spirit are all the same in the Hebrew Old Testament and the Greek New Testament. God is spirit. Now, this is a very hard concept, isn't it? So God has no definitive what? Shape or or form, you know? That's what God is. He's spirit. He has no physical component. Okay, by the way, I throw in some really fancy words for you at no expense, no extra cost. Let me use this word here. Anthropomorphism. I'll spell it if uh, if you can't see it from back there. A-N-T-H-R-O-P-O-M-O-R-P-H-I-S-M. Now you can see anthro. You know anthro stands for man. Anthropology. Study of mankind, right? And anthropomorphism is a figure of speech because sometimes in the Bible, the Bible does use figure of speech to talk about God. Next week, for example, when we look at the Garden of Eden, we're going to hear that Adam and Eve heard God walking in the garden. Okay. That's a figure of speech. God wasn't doing this in the garden, as we're going to see, because God is what? He's spirit. Later on, we'll talk about the, about the right arm or right hand of God. God doesn't have a right hand or right arm because God is spirit. So what we're going to find out, that's a figure of speech for his power. Or they'll talk about the eyes of God. God doesn't have any eyes. That's a figure of speech saying God what? Sees all things and things like that. So that's called an anthropomorphism. And the reason that that's important, if God is a spirit, I say close your eyes and picture God. It should just be blank. Because that's what a spirit is. Now, here's the point. How then can we understand a being, God, who's pure spirit? You know, we can't even picture him. How do we relate to that? So God uses figures of speech for us. He often describes, the Bible often describes God in human terms so we can what? Understand. So we can get a handle on what God's like and it's kind of like you know when you're talking to children if you're talking to a five year old I would suggest you don't use the word anthropomorphism with a five year old we do this we just kind of do it naturally don't we if we're talking to a small child what do we do with our, our language and our, how we're talking we bring it down to the what hey God's God and that means he also has to do what to us got to bring it down to our level anthropomorphisms, figures of speech in human terms so we can understand this pure spirit being. Okay. okay, so he's spirit. The next one, Psalm 90, verse 2, from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. After that, you want to write the word eternal, eternal. And then if you'll look up here for a moment, everlasting, just another word for eternal. Watch what I'm going to do here now. Watch, it's sort of a visual. From everlasting... To everlasting. You get that? No beginning, no end. Now, we don't have too much of a time thinking about something, let me do it this way, something beginning and going on what? Forever. Every teenager thinks that, right? Teenagers think they are indestructible. Right. So we don't have too much of a problem with something starting and going on forever. The dilemma, though, with God is that God not only goes on, what, forever, but God had no, God had no beginning. Ah, that's the part we bring out the aspirin bottles. Well, that's often in Christian symbolism. And the Christian church has a long history of symbolism, including like the Trinity here. But is, is the circle. Because if you did a perfect circle with a compass, you could see no beginning, no end. Yeah. And so a circle in Christian artwork, ecclesiastical artwork, thing, is often the symbol for eternity. No beginning, no end. Well, right there you have an intellectual dilemma, don't you? Because we would say, and rightly so, other than God, everything has a beginning, but not God. Not God. Okay, so from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Malachi, last book in the Old Testament, Prophet Malachi around the year 400, 450 BC. I am the Lord, I change not. And after that, just put, uh, I I won't give you the fancy word, but just write uh, unchanging. Unchanging. Now, what that means is God doesn't change at all. We change. He doesn't change in two ways. First of all, he doesn't change in who he is. We change in who we are. We start out as a little cute baby, right? Go into the terrible twos, get worse in the teenage years, <laughs> and we kind of grow up, mature a little bit, get married or whatever, and then we live a life and then we get old and dot. No, we, we change, don't we, in our, in our essence, who we are. God never changes. God can't grow because if he grew, that would mean at one time he wasn't what he should have been, Right? So he never changes in who he is in his essence or being. He doesn't become better because then he couldn't be God. The second way he doesn't change is how he operates, how he acts. Simple illustration. If the Bible says Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago is the only way to God in eternal life, that's true in 2006 too. God's not going to come up and say, golly, you know, I've been thinking about this, and I've been considering the needs of modern, you know, postmodern human beings, and this Jesus thing just isn't working anymore. So I've come up with a new plan. If you hear something like that, you're hearing a false prophet, because God doesn't what? God doesn't change. Now, that's very comforting. I don't know if you've lived long enough or had enough experiences in life. People often let us down, don't they? And why do they let us down? Well, there may be many reasons why they let us down, but one of the reasons is they change, and we can't what? Can't count on them. They're not dependable. Wouldn't that be horrible if God's that way? What we're going to learn next week in the fall into sin, if this, is, if this music stand is God, and this is my relationship with God, what we're going to learn is if this relationship with God is ever broken, guess, guess whose fault it's going to be? Not God, because God what? He never changes. He's faithful. If this relationship is broken, it's going to be because of me. Ah, but the good thing we're going to learn throughout this course, if I have a change of mind, and in the Bible that's called repentance, and I want to come back to God, guess what? There he is, because he never changes. I left him. He didn't leave me. So this is very comforting. That means we have a a loyal God, a faithful God who won't change his mind on us. Okay, uh, the next one, Genesis 17, 1, I am the Almighty God. Wow, Almighty. Well, that's pretty clear, isn't it? You can put uh, all-powerful however you want to do that. Now, this is very important because if he's all-powerful, And by the way, I could do this with all these traits. All these traits are very practical. In other words, I can make them all abstract, but I'm going to start making them kind of practical now. God is all-powerful. Well, what's some of the practical application of that? Well, if he's all-powerful, do you want to be on the bad side of God? Because if you're on the bad side of God, who's going to protect you from God? The answer is nobody. Because he's all-powerful, which is what the judgment day is all about, but you have to wait till lesson 14 for that. That's how I get you to keep coming back. On the other hand, if God is all-powerful and he says that he loves us, who can then be against us, right? As a matter of fact, some of you may know your Bibles well enough. That's exactly what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? Because why? Because God's what? All-powerful. As a matter of fact, so powerful, we've talking about, he's even going to raise us from the dead. So not even this horrible, permanent, ugly-looking thing called death can separate us from God. He's so powerful, he's going to raise us up, as we're going to talk about. So let's sort of some practical application of this characteristic of him being almighty. 1 John 3.20, very interesting passage. Uh, God knows what? Everything, everything. This is his omniscience. He knows all things. And again, I can use this as a threat or as comfort again. Use it as a threat. Okay. okay, You can't hide anything from God, can you? You can hide it from mom and dad. You can hide it from a husband or a wife. You can't hide it, what? From God. God knows all things. On the other hand, it's also very comforting. Okay. If I was a soldier over in Iraq, and I find myself in a difficult position, really comforting as a Christian, to know that God knows this situation even better than I Or sometimes, sometimes you say things in your heart that no one else knows. I don't know if you can relate to that. Maybe there's some things in our heart we've not even said to our husband or our wife or our parents. It's just there. It's too painful to talk about it to anybody else. But God knows and he understands because he knows all things. He understands you and me better than we even understand ourselves. That's really comforting. Now, he knows all things. I always kind of do this just to show you, give you a headache again. That means God knows right now what all of you are thinking and feeling in this class. And he reports to me afterwards, so you better watch it. (laughs) I'm just kidding. He knows everything that you're thinking and feeling. Now, let's, let's, let's have some fun. He knows... What everyone in Seattle is thinking and feeling right now. In the state of Washington, he knows what everybody's thinking and feeling right now. In the entire United States of America, he knows exactly what every human being is thinking and feeling. He knows what every human being, over 6 billion of them in the world, are thinking and feeling right now. And on top of that, he's running the entire universe. He's busy. (laughs) He knows everything okay this is a neat one too Jeremiah prophet Jeremiah twenty three, twenty four. God says do I not fill the heavens and the earth by the way here heaven means uh, universe in the Bible when you come across the word heaven it can have one of three meanings and you tell from the context because the uh, especially the Old Testament doesn't have a separate word for the universe although the New Testament does heaven can mean the little firmament around the planet earth which we call what the atmosphere okay heaven can be the dwelling of God and the dwelling of God is where Everywhere. Or heaven can mean the created universe. Here it means the universe. Do I not feel the heavens and the earth, the universe and the earth? Which simply means God is where? Everywhere. God is everywhere. Now this is closely related to him knowing everything, isn't it? He is present everywhere. So, you know, wouldn't wouldn't it be horrible if every time you wanted to be in God's presence, you had to come down to church? No. Wherever you are, who's with you? God's with you. (laughs) <laughs> That's very comforting. Um, I do not feel the heavens. Now, let me show you a really uh, 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 <laughs> an interesting concept. We'll take this off and maybe come back to it. We're going to talk about uh, creation a little bit later and evolution. But let's 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 assume for a moment that the universe is expanding. I don't know if it is or isn't. Scientists say it, or it is. I can't think of anything specifically in the Bible that would be against that. But let's say that it's expanding. Okay, it's expanding. You know, the Big Bang. So they say it's going out like that. Now I know that the scientists say one day that it's going to be like a rubber band. It's going to what? reach its what limits, and then what's going to happen, according to scientists. Right, like that. Okay. Now, I don't know if that's all true or not, but that's okay. Here's the point. In theory, how long could the universe expand, do you think? You got it. Because if the universe was expanding and hit a brick wall, what would be the natural question? Well, who put the brick wall? That's a good one, too. Who put the brick wall there, but what's on the other side? Now, here's the point. There is no wall. The universe could expand what? Forever indefinitely. And now listen, because here comes the awesome part. That's God. In other words, there's no what to God. Getting a headache yet? There's there's no end to God. Now, we already know from our own scientific observations the vastness of space. God's bigger. I'll say this uh, on this point here. I'll say it now. Uh, There's nothing bigger than God. God's bigger than the universe because the universe is what expanding in God. Now here's the opposite side though. There's nothing littler than God, because now that we have these powerful microscopes, what are we learning? If you follow, what are we learning from these powerful microscopes? The microscopic world is getting what smaller and smaller, and we just keep getting what. You know, a hundred years ago, scientists thought, "Well, we've gotten down to the basics; can't get any smaller than this." And now that our microscopes are bigger, it just keeps getting what smaller. And God's there. God's there. Okay. Uh, Leviticus 19.2 and Deuteronomy 32.4. We're going to take these together, and this is what I want you to do. Here's the Bible passages right there, okay? And I want you to make a bracket and put a cross. I'm going to watch my time here. Bracket and a cross. A little bit quicker here. Now, I'm going to come back to this when we get to Jesus. Leviticus 19.2 says, I, the Lord your God, am a holy God. That means God never does anything wrong. That's why God is the standard of right and wrong, good and evil. He is holy. How holy is He? Well, next week we're going to find out in our lesson, Angels and Sin, how many sins did it take for Adam and Eve to muck up everything? That's how holy God is. One. And we're going to come back to that concept over and over and over again. But then look at Deuteronomy 32, 4. What does it say? Just and right is he. Now, in other words, God's not only holy, but because he's a just God, what does God have to do with wrongdoing if he's going to be God? What do human beings do with wrong behavior? to one degree or another, depending on what behavior it is and what the relationship is. Punish it. Why do we punish it? Because wrongdoing goes against what? Just. It's just. If you do, if you do A, you're going to be punished. That's justice. God's a just God. and, and This is often what's not thought of with uh, some people with Christianity because we often hear God is love, which we're going to get to. But if you're going to talk about the God of the Bible, you have to talk about What? God as He is, not God as you want to make Him. See, God is a just God. He must punish wrongdoing. That's why we're going to learn next week, Adam and Eve, one one goof and they're gone, which we'll talk about. Now, here's my point, and this is why you need to stay in this class for 15 weeks, because this is a journey we're on, a process that we're on, where I hope when you're done, all the interlocking parts are going to fit. The reason... Okay, just a minute. The reason I put this up here, you will not understand the cross of Jesus Christ unless you understand God is a holy God and a just God. Okay? Why did this poor man have to die? Because he died for the sins of the world. Well, what does that mean? It means God can't tolerate sin. And God must punish sin. Well, where's the good news in that? You're not going to be punished. Because he punished his own son. He's our substitute. That's why this is so important. Often we talk about the love of God in the cross, and rightly so, rightly so. But the opposite side of that love is God's justice. And what we're going to find out when we get to the lesson on Jesus, this is so awesome to show you the wisdom of God. Look how God in one act brings justice and love together. That's why Jesus, among other reasons, is called the wisdom of God. In one act, God satisfied His justice and also as an expression of what? His love for humanity. In the same act as we're going to see. But you won't understand Jesus. Why'd that poor guy have to die unless you understand God is holy, can't tolerate sin, and he must punish it. I'm sorry to cut you off to get that in. No, no, no,
3: oh, it's okay. okay. That actually was kind of where you're
2: going with that? Yeah. Yeah. Otherwise you turn Jesus into a therapist. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah. Therapist. Yeah, did you want to come in, please? So, I don't know where you're going that. Let me say this and you, then you can respond. Our suffering doesn't get us to heaven. His suffering gets us to heaven. However, if we want to follow Him the way we're supposed to, we might have to suffer here or there to follow Him. That's one thing, maybe if you know the Bible passage, where I'm coming with, is one place Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow me. So sometimes if we want to be a Christian... Now, the world doesn't really like Christianity, which we'll get into another way. And so if you want to be a real Christian, you may have to suffer sometimes. But that doesn't get you to heaven. His suffering gets you to heaven. And we'll talk more about that, I promise you.
1: All right, we're going to pause right there, pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Pirate Christian. follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Christian. Quick break. When we come back, the balance of today's lecture by Pastor Ernie Lassman. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We will be right back. Living a life of purpose can't save you. You're listening to
0: Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. Presents Church Day Select and now Max Holiday's Bird Cage proudly presents
3: Sessions with Mildred. Uh,
0: Do you know why I called you in here today?
3: Am I in trouble?
0: Oh, no, no, no. Of course not. We're just worried about you.
3: Is this about my tithes? You know, I'm so sorry. I forgot the $5. You hate me now, don't you? Oh,
0: no. No, you've been very good about meeting your tithe quota. Besides, if this had been about your tithes, we would have sent someone to your house. I just wanted to discuss your attitude because some of the elders have started to talk about it.
3: My attitude
0: oh yes your attitude you see we're all about our congress having audacious faith but we've noticed that you seem to be having difficulty being audacious during services
3: um are you talking about the holy ghost Toky pokey is i not dancing right you know i i tried practicing at home but when i put my whole self in i fell over and injured fluffles who's fluffles well, uh, he's my cat, and after I fell down, I didn't know if he was breathing. Okay,
0: we we you straight from the top. Look, you don't have to dance during the services, but you can at least start singing. I mean, what's the point of having jumbo screens with sing along lyrics if people aren't being audacious and using them?
3: When I was younger, I had this bird, and I decided to take it outside with me and start singing to it, and a hawk dove down and snatched Muffin from my finger.
0: Oh, dear. Uh, I'm so sorry about Muffin,
3: but let's get back to the
0: present point. If you don't want to sing or dance during the service, then I guess we'll let you have make that choice. But if nothing else, won't you please be more daisy and just do the hand motions?
3: Well, last year, I had my gerbil outside and his hamster ball, and... Uh, the interview
0: is not going as expected. Well,
3: I was practicing hand motions, and my bracelet caught a glare in a driver's eye, and the car swerved, and it hit Mr. Cuddles. He flew into the mouth of an octopus living in the sewer, Apparently, he didn't taste very good, so he spit him back up into the street where my neighbor ran him over with his lawnmower, which broke the hamster ball, but not Mr. Cuddles. So then Mr. Cuddles escaped, and then a dog thought Mr. Cuddles was a chew toy, so he chewed on him, but Mr. Cuddles didn't like that, so he survived, and I got him back. Well, that's
0: finally something positive. I bet you anything that Mr. Cuddles would love for you to be more audacious in church.
3: Well, but he died a week later from rabies that he got from the octopus.
0: Uh, well, I think we'll have to schedule a second meeting for you sometime in the next... Never, I mean month.
1: holiday travel season is now upon us it came out of nowhere didn't it but listen despite the fact that it comes up so quick the last thing you want to do is pay more for airfare hotel rooms or rental cars than you need to that's why you want to utilize pirate christian radio's longtime featured advertiser cheapo air for all of your holiday travel needs visit our website first though pirate christian radio.com forward slash cheap and you'll find a promo code there that'll help you save an additional $15 off the cheapo airs already low prices write down the promo code then click on the ad banner and book your holiday travel uh, arrangements uh, using their website very easy to use very inexpensive you save an additional $15 and by visiting our website first and then writing down that promo code a portion of your purchase will go to support pirate Christian radio so again pirate Christian radio dot com forward slash cheap write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save lots of money on your holiday travel needs.
0: Yeah! Hooray! That was a great happy birthday song. Okay, Charlie. Time to open up your presents. Alright, Grandpa. Uh, Let's see what we have here. Oh... Yay! I've always wanted two tin cans and a string. It's one of those communicated devicey thingies. Now you can talk to your friends of a long. Ow. Do not fear, nerds of the world. Never again will you have to deal with poorly made gifts and cheap knockoffs. Just tell your antiquated relatives about ThinkGeek. At Think Geek, you will find a vast selection of creative and quality products to tickle your every fancy. Celebrate your love of all things nerdy by going to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. And by clicking on the ad banner, a portion of your purchase will go to supporting Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio.
1: Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church, especially if your pastor doesn't actually engage in this level of depth of just good Christian teaching of Christian doctrine. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world, and you can partner with us. That's right. It's a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, currently we're running our Christmas bake sale to help us make budget for the uh, year 2013. Uh, You can find that by looking at the very top of our webpage. You see a little, the words bake sale. Click on that, and you can go to our bake sale, and you can find some. Some items beaded by my mother-in-law. Yes, that's right. (laughs) <laughs> it's kind of like a bake sale, except for she didn't bake them. She made them. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's a great way to support us. Of course, you can join our crew, which is another great, fantastic way to support Fighting for the Faith. Uh, click on the donate, uh, the the sorry, the join our crew button. Or you can make a one-time contribution by clicking on the donate button. Or you can make your gift payable, too. Fighting for the Faith. And then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, here's the balance of today's lecture by Pastor Ernie Lastman regarding the nature of God and creation. Here we go.
2: All right, and then um, finally, 2 Timothy 2.13, he remains faithful. I gave you an example of that, walking away from the music stand. And, of course, God is his love. So when we look at all these passages, we find out at the bottom, what is God then? He's a personal being without a body. In other words, he has intellect. Now, remember how I said, I didn't say he had a brain. Brain would be what? Physical. He's got intellect without a brain. And I kind of like that. <laughs> and he has a will. You can relate to him. He's a personal being. You can talk to him. Right? He can love you. Things like that. But what else? He is eternal at the bottom of the page. He's unchangeable, almighty, omniscient, all-knowing, omnipresent, present everywhere, holy, sinless, and hating sin, just, fair, faithful, keeping His promises, and He is love. Now, now we get into the triune God. And let me warn you right now, you're not going to intellectually understand this. Uh, there's so many things about our faith. Well, there's even things about life in general that we don't understand. What was I reading about that scientists don't really understand this? Oh, yeah. I was watching a program on, uh, on superglue. <laughs> I know I have a sick mind. I think it was a Discovery Channel or something like that. And I'm just taking them at their word. They know that this stuff works, but they don't really know what. They don't know the mechanism of how this stuff works. Well, if that's true in the physical realm, there's so many things that just work and we don't know it how it works, right? then why would we be surprised that we're going to find out things about God that we don't understand? If we understood everything about God, that would mean one of two things. Our God's not very big. He's only as big as my puny little brain can think of him. Or, I'm God. I understand everything. So you should never be stunned, shocked, or dismayed as we go through this class, for example. There's there's going to be some things you're going to go, huh? But as far as I'm concerned, the most important thing that I'm going to show you, if it's found clearly here, and that's a big point, I understand that. Is it really found there or not? But if it is, these things don't matter then. I believe this if it's clearly taught there, whether I understand it or not. Because there's lots of things I don't understand. Okay, let's talk about this mystery of the Trinity then. Um, let's look at the Bible passages, then I'll use a few illustrations. Deuteronomy 6.4, that is the Old Testament. Here, O Israel, the Lord your God is what? One Lord. Now we look up tons of passages, but this one will do it. There's only one God. Uh, the, the Christian church has never taught that there's anything more than one God. There's only one God. And yet, when we look at the Bible very carefully, we find this mystery of the Trinity. And let me kind of put it out real simple and then we'll look at the Bible passages and a few others. When we look at the Bible, we discover that the Father's God, the Son's God, and the Holy Spirit's God, and that the Bible insists from beginning to end that there's one God. So, what do we do with this mystery you know and that's kind of what we're what we're talking about now probably one of the most uh clear not necessarily the only clear but a nice passage to summarize this is the words that Jesus taught us to be baptized in and we're talking about baptism in lesson 10 Matthew 28:19 this is Jesus speaking to his disciples right before his sins into heaven and sits down at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, which I promise you we'll talk about all those concepts. He says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. I don't know how carefully you were listening uh, last week, but at one point I said, He who errs in grammar errs in theology. And the reason for that is because God has revealed himself to us in what? Human words. Now, there's something very interesting about that passage grammatically. I see if anybody can figure it out before I say the. And it's obvious, it's not a trick question. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. What is kind of interesting? I mean, and if you're a Christian for a long time, you, you may be so used to it, it doesn't jump out at you. But there's something interesting about that grammatically. Is, is the name singular? Is the word name singular or plural? It's singular. How many names follow though? Three. Eh? So what we have here, and we've got more passages I'm going to show you, with the word singular word name saying there's what? One God. And yet, and it's not this only passage. We have tons of other passages we'll look at, some of them. Yet God is what? Father, Son. And spirit. And just a little bit, I'm going to show you that this is even hinted at in the Old Testament. So just just bear with me. So what do we learn from this? From this, we learn God is one. We got the word triune. It comes from the Latin. Un means what? One? What's a unicycle? One wheel, right? Unicycle. Okay. And then we have the word tri. Tri means three. A tricycle has three wheels. So triune means three in three in one. Father, son, and and Holy Spirit. The true God is the triune God. The Father sent the Son to be our Savior, and the Son came, and then the Holy Spirit. We'll be doing this a lot, but let me get up here real quick again. And and we'll be talking about this over and over again. And remember, I'm warning you, you are not going to understand this. Bear with me, because I'm going to tell you what this means and what it does not mean. So I kind of have to give my little spiel here before we get into it. So the Father... Sent us, this is the teaching of the Bible, sent the Son into the world as the man Jesus, right? But does anybody know which person of the Triune God conceived the human nature of Jesus in the womb of the Virgin Mary? Yeah. Like yeah. <laughs> which person of the Triune God conceived the human nature of Jesus in the womb of the Virgin Mary? Spirit. Think about your Christmas story, the Holy Spirit. In other words, the whole Christmas story is the Triune God. The Father sends the Son. The human nature of Jesus is conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary, and the Son becomes man, which we'll we'll talk about. Okay, um, now, um, let's look at some Old Testament passages before I do some other things. Uh, Would you write these down in your booklet, and then we'll look them up? Genesis 1, 26-27. Genesis 3, 22. Genesis 11, 7 and Numbers 6, 24 to 26. Okay, Genesis 1, 26 to 26. And remember, there's more in the Old Testament. These are, I just have time to do these because they'll show you a little bit of what I'm talking about. Genesis 1, 26, 27. Then God said, let... What? Well, wait a minute. Now, we have God. There's only how many gods? Mm-hmm. One, but he's saying what? Let us. He's not talking about the angels, some people say that, because people were not created in the image of angels. What do you think is going on here? Let us let us make man in our image, right? And it goes on I go to verse 27. So singular God, right? Singular God created in His what? His singular own image. So in verse 26 you have Plural pronouns. Verse 27, you have singular pronoun. Okay? Go to chapter 322. 322. This is after the fall. And the Lord God said, singular, the man has now become like one of us. And we'll talk about knowing good and evil next week. Go to Genesis uh, eleven, seven. 7. Genesis 11, 7. This is the Tower of Babel or Babel. And we just want to look at one verse because we don't have time for all of it. Come, this is God speaking, come let us go down, confuse their language so they're not understanding. And look at verse 8, so the Lord singular, the Lord singular scattered them from all over the earth. And then finally, Numbers, so Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, chapter 6, and some of you might recognize this passage. For those who don't, this is the benediction or blessing that we give at the end of our worship service on Sunday morning. 22 and following, the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron and his sons, this is how you are to bless the Israelites. Say to them, and you might want to watch my fingers, (laughs) the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord turn his face to you and give you peace. Three of them, right? Verse 27, so they'll put my what? Name singular on them. Now, I, I, don't ha- I have to stop here. This is just kind of tickling your uh, fancy. But the word, uh, the, the number three, you're not going to be surprised. The number three is often a symbol. What do you suppose the number three is often a symbol for in the Bible? God. God. Yeah, it's all over the place. I, that's all I can do uh, for tonight, though, to show you that even in the Old Testament. Now, uh, what I want to do is talk about a few basic things. Um, and I'm going to show you this on the handouts real quickly. Where would my handouts go? Here they are. On the triune God. Let's do this real quick. Just bring it to your attention. I'm watching the clock. Here's the mystery of the triune God. It's a mystery. Nobody understands this. But you see, the, if you can see there, the Father's God, the Son is God, and the Spirit's God. See that? But it says the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit's not. The Father, and this kind of gets back to your question, Pat. This is the mystery that we, we struggle with with human language because we try to explain what's not really completely spelled out in the Bible. And so what we what has happened in theology, Pat, is these are called persons, not meaning a human being, not this. But but in a way that the Bible, very in a limited way, talks about, the Father is distinct from the Son, and the Father is distinct from the Holy Spirit, and the Son is distinct from the Holy Spirit, and yet there's only... One God. So we call it a person. So you, you kind of picked up on that a little bit that somehow the Father's distinct, isn't he? And as a matter of fact, when we learn about when we get to the Holy Spirit in lesson number eight, we'll talk a little bit about this too, because the Father and the Son send the Holy Spirit. So this is part of that mystery. Whether we'll have a fuller understanding on the day of the resurrection, I don't know. But this is part of the mystery of the Triune God. Yeah. Right. And he is both He is No, exactly, exactly. See, this is where, once you start understanding the mystery of the Trinity, it doesn't answer everything, but it starts making a little bit more sense. Now you can understand a little bit how the Son can pray to the Father, especially in human form, Yeah, which we'll talk about. Let's do this side. What this side is, these are wrong teachings of the Trinity, wrong teachings of the Trinity that are heresies, that were were rejected in the early church. Let's see if you can figure it out. Start in the upper left-hand corner, number one. And that symbol there, F-S, Holy Spirit, is a symbol for God. What is wrong with that, with the information I've given you thus far? What's wrong with that? They're cut into thirds. In other words, it says basically, yeah, there's only one God. Well, that's easy to explain. The Father's one-third God, and the Son's one-third God. Holy Spirit, one-third God. Slam dunk. Only problem is... The Father's not one-third God. He's all God. The Son's not one-third God. He's all God. The Holy Spirit's not one-third God. He's all God. There's your intellectual dilemma. Oh, you mean there's three gods? No, <laughs> there's one God. Okay, so you got that one. Upper left-hand corner, I just gave it away. Watch wrong with number two in the upper right-hand corner?
1: Three
2: gods, right? Yeah, they say the Father's God, the Son's God, the Holy Spirit's God, so there must be... Three gods, gods—that's the church rejects that. Okay, now this is kind of interesting. Look at the lower left uh, one uh, where it says sometimes, sometimes, sometimes. What is the problem with that? Okay, he's always, not only sometimes. Anybody else get it? In this view, they're, they're clearly saying there's one God, right? But what are they denying here? That they can't be all. Yeah. In other words, they're not denying that there's one God. They're denying that there are three distinct persons. Okay? It's sort of like Halloween. If I have a mask here, like I'm God, sometimes I come out and I've got the mask of the Father on. Okay? And then I come out and I've got the mask of the Son on. And I come out and I've got the mask of the Holy Spirit. Well, sure, there's only one God, but I'm denying what? There's really not a Father, Son, and Spirit, is there, in that view? It's just a mask I put on. So it's denying the reality of the distinctiveness of the three persons of the Godhead. And finally, can anybody figure out uh, the lower uh, lower right? What's wrong with that one? I guess Yeah.
3: Where I was
2: Were you a Jehovah Witness? I was. Ah, see, I know my theology. You're a Jehovah... That's right, so explain it for us. What, what do the Jehovah Witnesses believe? Because you're right, this is the Jehovah Witness view that of God. God. the Father is God. Only the Father is God, yep. And the Son is... What the Jehovah would say, he is a God, which means he's higher than the angels, but he's not equal to the Father. Father. He's not God like the Father is, and uh, the Holy Spirit. Then this is a lightning bolt. The Holy Spirit in in this theology is not a personal being. He's just a power or something. Yeah. Okay, yeah, those are the erroneous teachings. Well, let me really quickly, I'm feeling a little bit behind, so bear with me. We're going to go through the Athanasian Creed really quick. I do not expect you to understand this. Just look at it. You can read it on your own. And I'm not going to go through the whole thing, just part on the Trinity to show you what we're talking about here. And you can take it home and, and look at it and study it, and then we've got to move on. Whoever shall be saved shall above all else hold the Catholic faith. Now, don't get upset about that. I'll be talking about that in Lesson 12 of the Church. Catholic faith does not mean Roman Catholic. It simply means universal, which I'll explain to you. It comes from a Latin word, means universal. In other words, all Christians believe this. Which faith, except everyone keeps whole and undefiled without doubt, will perish eternally? The Catholic faith is this. We worship one God in what? Three persons, three persons in one God. Neither confusing the persons. In other words, we don't turn the Father into the... Son, right? Nor dividing the substance. We don't cut him up into three parts. For there is one person the Father, another the Son, another the Holy Spirit. But the Godhead of the Father, the Son and Holy Spirit, are all what? One. The glory, equal. The majesty, co-eternal. Such as the Father is, such as the Son, such as the Holy Spirit. The Father uncreated, the Son uncreated, the Holy Spirit uncreated. The Father incomprehensible, the Son incomprehensible, the Holy Spirit incomprehensible. The Father eternal, the Son eternal, the Holy Spirit eternal. And yet, there are not three eternals, but one eternal. There are not three uncreated, nor three incomprehensibles but one uncreated, and one incomprehensible. So likewise the Father's Almighty, the Son Almighty, the Holy Spirit Almighty, and yet there are not three Almighties, but one Almighty. So the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God, and yet they are not three gods, but one God. So the Father is Lord, the Son Lord, the Holy Spirit Lord, and yet there are not three Lords, but one Lord. For as we are compelled by the Christian truth to acknowledge every person by himself to be both God and Lord, so we cannot, by the Catholic faith, say there are three gods or three lords. The Father is made of none; neither is created nor begotten. The Son is of the Father alone, uh, not made nor created, but begotten. And that's from John chapter one. So that's just Bible language. The Holy Spirit is not of the Father; is of the Father and the Son, neither made nor created nor begotten, but proceeding. That's Bible language again. You can read about that in John 14:15 and 16. So this is right from the Bible. There's one Father, not three fathers, one Son, not three sons, one Holy Spirit, not three Holy Spirits, and this Trinity, none, is before or after the other. None is greater or less than the other. But the whole three persons are co-eternal together and co-equal. So that all things, as we said before, the unity and Trinity and Trinity and unity is to be worshipped. And it goes on from there, and i have to have to stop there. So, uh, I don't understand this any better than you do. All I know is what the Bible says. The Father's God, the Son's God, and the Holy Spirit's God, but there's only one God. So that's an intellectual problem, and now we're back to this, aren't we? But if I can't even understand why sticky glue works, I'm not going to worry too much about not understanding the triune God. Okay? Okay, bear with me, please. Uh, think about that. I know I gave you a lot to think about. Um, the last thing I'll give you, and then we've got to move on because we've got to get to creation and evolution. Some people do this. This doesn't really prove anything, but it's just kind of interesting. You know, if I did this... whoops equals 1 okay 1, 1, 1 how could 1, 1, 1 equal 1? yeah that's true no, no we can do it mathematically mm-hmm. ah 1 times 1 times 1 equals 1 now you can do with that whatever you want it doesn't really prove anything but it just shows you got three ones, but equal what? Three ones equal 1 you can do with what you want with that. Okay. Well, let's go to number five so we can get to creation or evolution. So I don't run out of time. What does it uh, mean to believe in God? Psalm 31, 14, I trust in thee, O Lord. I say thou art my God. And to believe in God means that I personally, in my heart, trust and rely on God. And that's why I gave you this little picture. This, uh, who do you think the person with the halo is? That's, that's Jesus. Okay, And the rope He's taking you over the Grand Canyon and on the other side is God and eternal life. Would it take a little bit of faith to get into the wheelbarrow? (laughs) That's the way it is with God. I've never seen God. I've never seen Jesus, but I'm staking my whole life on Him to believe all this stuff. And when I'm dying in the hospital or at home, I'm going to trust in Him. I'm I'm going to get in the wheelbarrow trusting He's going to get me on the other side. That's what faith is. And I'm going to do this very quickly because we're going to get back to this. We're going to have a whole lesson on faith. So I just want to plant the seed here. So let's get a little bit into evolution and and creation. Uh, First of all, you need to know the difference between microevolution and macroevolution because one is scientifically proved and the other is not. And what I can do, I realize I don't know most of you, so I don't know where you're coming from on this subject. Uh, I can only do so much this evening, obviously, on evolution or something like that. Um, But microevolution and macroevolution. Micro and macro come from a Greek word. Micro means little. Microscopic? Little. And macro means uh, big, like macaroni and cheese. I did that for you, Trevor. No, I'm just kidding. Macro means big. Micro evolution is scientifically true. We can observe it and test it. Micro evolution simply means that there can be changes in a species so you get a subspecies. And there's lots of things else I could say, but that's sufficient. But the point is, it's still the same Animal, isn't it? It's just sort of changes took place in the animal, but it's the same animal. Microevolution says that an ant became a hippopotamus. I'm being silly to make my point. It's a big, big, a big jump. Now, here's the point: there is scientific ev- uh, evidence for this, uh, and, and there's no problem with Christianity or the Bible. No problem with microevolution. Our problem is with macroevolution because it goes completely against the Bible, even against the way we're saved, which I'll try to show you. But what I'm trying to establish right now, there is no scientific evolution for uh, proof for macroevolution. What they do, and I'm being a little bit simplistic, but not much, they take all the evidence for microevolution, which is there, then they make an assumption that's not proved. If this worked in microevolution, it must work at the larger level too. That's an assumption, and there's no scientific proof for that at all. Now, what I want to do is just bring to your attention some, some some information that you can do on your own, and then I've got to get to the biblical text, which is the most important thing. A couple of things on evolution. You may or may not know, you probably do, there is a heated, heated, heated debate on evolution in our country. And I don't mean just the men, Bible thumpers and things like that. I mean in the academic community. This is going on. And it's very heated. Now, this is an article I got from Time Magazine in, let's uh, see, I wrote this down. When did I get this? Uh, December 28, 1992, Time Magazine. Science, God, and man. Now this is 1992. Let me just read a couple of things in here. Because what's often, what I'm trying to address here is that, that there is no scientific evidence. And the, also the idea that when you get engaged in these, these dialogues, and I've been doing this for a long time, okay, if you don't believe in evolution, sometimes the other side considers you're a little bit mentally feeble. You know, you must not be very smart or you'd believe in evolution. How can you not believe in evolution? And it's sort of a condescension that takes place. And what I'm going to try to show you is there's lots of smart people, including some that aren't even Christian, that don't believe in the theory of evolution. So here you've got a Time um, magazine article. Let me read you a couple of things. It says here on the front page, New discoveries in physics, cosmology, and biology make the universe more explainable as well as more amazing. Does this undermine religious faith or reinforce it. I've got some things highlighted here. A pattern suggesting to some scientists at least that there's more to this universe than meets the eye. Something authentically divine about how it all fits together. One intriguing observation has that has bubbled up from f- physics is that the universe seems calibrated for life's existence. If the force of gravity were pushed upward a bit, a bit, stars would burn out faster, leaving little time for life to evolve in the planets encircling them. If the relative masses of protons and neutrons were changed by just a hair, stars might never be born, since the hydrogen they eat wouldn't exist. If at the Big Bang some basic numbers, the initial conditions had been jiggled just a little bit, matter and energy would never have coagulated into galaxies, stars, planets or any other platform stable enough for life as we know it and so on but more recent careful analysis suggests that even a mildly impressive living molecule is quite unlikely to form randomly then where did it come from? the deeper our insight the more baffling things become this universe seems geared to create not just intelligent life but intelligent meaningful life that's just a few quotes from that now a couple other things I want to bring to your attention in this debate are some books that I have Uh, bear with me as I watch my time this is a book by Michael Denton an Australian microbiologist and uh, it's entitled Evolution, A Theory in Crisis this is one of the first books that really threw down the gauntlet in the academic community I don't know if this man's a Christian or not there's not one word in here about Christianity it's all science not uh, one word in here. And basically, let me read you just a little bit from the jacket. This was, came out in 1986. The idea of evolution is the keystone of our modern worldview, yet the theory of evolution, as propounded by Darwin and elaborated into accepted fact by the scientific establishment, is coming under increasing fire. This authoritative and remarkably accessible book by a molecular biologist shows how rapidly accumulating evidence is threatening the basic assumptions of orthodox Darwinianism. Although the theory appears to be correct regarding the emergence of new species... Microevolution. Its larger claims to account for the relationship between classes and orders, macroevolution, let alone the origin of life, appear to be based on shaky foundations at best. Not only has paleontology—that's the the fossils. not only has paleontology failed to come up with the missing link which Darwin anticipated but hypothetical reconstructions of major evolutionary developments such as that linking birds to reptiles I'm sure you heard that are beginning to look more like fantasies than serious conjectures even the currently popular theory of punctuated equilibrium cannot adequately fill in the real gaps we face when envisioning how major groups of plants and animals arose most important of all the discoveries of molecular biologists far from strengthening Darwin's claims are throwing more and more doubt onto traditional Darwinianism. At a fundamental level of molecular structure, each member of a class seems equally representative of that class, and no species appear to be in any real sense intermediate between the two classes. Nature in some appears to be profoundly discontinuous. In other words, there is no evolution. And for you, if you know DNA, the genetic code, that's the reason. A code's a code, right? Right? Okay, so that's that's one. Michael Denton, Evolution of Theory and Crisis. This is Darwin's black box. This man is very involved too. Uh, Michael Behe, The Biochemical Challenge to Evolution. And all these books are well known. Uh, these aren't little books in a corner someplace. These are the men actually engaged in the academic debates uh, around our, our country. Uh, virtually all serious scientists accept the truth of Darwin's theory of evolution. While the, while the uh, fight for its acceptance has been long and difficult, after a century of struggle, among many, seem the battle is over. Biologists are now confident that the remaining questions, such as how life on earth began, or how the Cambrian explosion could have produced so many new species in such a short time, will be found to have Darwinian answers. They, like the most of us, uh, accept Darwin's theory to be true. But should we? What would happen if we found something that radically challenged the now accepted wisdom? In Darwin's black box, Michael Behe argues that evidence of evolution's limits has been right under our noses all the time. But it's so small that we've only recently been able to see it because we're in the area of molecular biology. The field of biochemistry, begun when Watson and Crick discovered the double helix shape of DNA, has unlocked the secrets of the cell. Their biochemists have unexpectedly discovered a world of Lilliputian complexity. As Behe engagingly demonstrates using the examples of vision, blood clotting, cellular transport, and more, the biochemical world comprises an arsenal of chemical machines made up of finely calibrated independent parts. For Darwinian evolution to be true, there must be a series of mutations, each of which produced its own working machine that led to the complexity. We can now see the more complex and interdependent each machine's parts are shown to be, the harder it is to envision Darwin's gradualistic paths. Behe surveys the professional science literature, shows it's completely silent on the subject, stymied, it goes on from there. I could read more, but I'm watching the clock. Uh, William Dembski, Intelligent Design, you've heard a little bit about this, um, a very smart man, I mean, uh, we're talking about uh, having graduate degrees from MIT, for example. Okay, these are these are not dummies. Uh, let me just read this real quick on the back here. William Dinsky is perhaps the very brightest of a new generation of scholars willing to challenge the most sacred 20th century intellectual idol, the unproven notion that all of life can be explained in terms of natural selection and mutations. That's Professor Henry Schaefer III, a Graham-Purdue Professor and Director, Center for Computational Quantum Chemistry University. Of Georgia, another one. This is more recent. Um, let's see when is this? Two thousand and four. Uncommon descent intellectuals who find Darwinianism unconvincing. And I'm save time. I'm not going to read off for the back of that one. The last one I'll read is Darwin on Trial by Philip Johnson. This is not a scientist, but he's a he's a lawyer and a good one. He was a professor of law at Yale, not a shabby institution. And he basically says in here, it's true. I'm not a scientist. Ah. But I'm very well trained in logic and rhetoric and argumentation. Let's put Darwin on trial and see if it holds up with the evidence. And this is what he reads. I've got to read you this in one. I don't know if you can appreciate this or not, but I just love reading it. Uh, basically, he's, what I'm going to tell you is, so you make sure you get this. He basically says um, the evidence is going to win out in the end. Let's give it up whether it's three more years, five more years, 15, 20 more years, but it's going to be disproven just because of the sheer weight of evidence is going to be, bring evolution down. So this is what he says at the end. Darwinian evolution with its blind watchmaker thesis, makes me think of a great battleship on the ocean of reality. Now the great battleship is the theory of evolution. So picture a great battleship labeled theory of evolution on the water. Its sides are heavily armored with philosophical barriers to any kind of criticism. Its decks are stacked with big rhetorical guns ready to intimidate any would-be attackers. Its its appearance is as impregnable as the Soviet Union seemed to be only a few years ago. And here's the phrase I like. But the ship has sprung a metaphysical leak. And the more perceptive of the ship's officers, that's people who teach evolution, had begun to sense that all the ship's firepower cannot save it if the leak is not plugged. Oh yes, there'll be heroic efforts to shave the, save the ship, of course, and some plausible rescuers will invite the officers to take refuge in electronic lifeboats equipped with high-tech gear like autocatalytic sets and computer models of self-organizing systems. The spectacle indeed will be fascinating and perhaps the battle will go on for a long time, but in the end, reality will win. That's because all the scientific evidence is countering Darwinian evolution in the molecular, at the molecular level. That's all I can do because I can't talk about all that. But I want to talk about what the Bible says because now that we can open up the idea that maybe this is not hardcore science, we can hear and see what the Bible actually says. Now, look, we're on question number six. So what I want to start with is actually point C. Do you see Exodus 20 verse 11? There's actually two verses in the Bible Let's say God created the world in six days. I'm going to start with those. Because if those two verses say that God created the world in six days, what's the only way we're going to be able to understand Genesis then if we're going to let the Bible interpret the Bible? It's got to be six days. It can't be long years and things like that. So that's why I'm not starting with Genesis. Although I'll show you that there are days in Genesis too. Now there's actually two. One of them is here. Exodus 20 verse 11. By the way, in the context, you can look it up on your own. God speaking in this passage. God says, "...in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them." You know, and I can imagine someone raising their hands and saying, "...well, you don't mean six literal days, do you?" Of course he meant six literal days. Uh, we're not going to look at the other one, but you can write it down to save time. Right after that Bible passage, write Exodus 31, 17. Exodus 31, 17. And we're going to look at Genesis in just a minute. But let's go back to A.B. under 6. Genesis one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, remember what I tell you heavens mean? Universe. The whole universe and the earth was created. Now, what's interesting is a quick side note here. This Hebrew word here is only used of God. Only God is the subject of this verb. And it basically means to create out of nothing. In other words, God didn't, God didn't start with something that was always there because that would make, that would make the universe eternal, wouldn't it? No, before creation, what was there? Just God in that huge expanse that we talked about. And there had to be just blackness because God doesn't need light to see, right? Right? And light's going to be created. So he created the world out of nothing. When you look at Genesis, it says, let there be lights. Wouldn't you like to do that? Let there be a Lexus LS 430. That's how God created as we're going to see, and we're going to, oh, sorry, I took it off, but he created with his word, which is the second person of the triune God, as I'm going to show you. Well, let's, let's uh, look at Hebrews 11.3. The author says, it's by faith that we understand the universe was created by God's word. I just told you that. So that what can be seen was made out of what cannot be seen. Now let's look at the Genesis account real quickly as I'm watching the clock. And i want to show you that not only does Exodus say God created the world in six days, but that's what Genesis 1 says as well. And I know I've been there and done that. I've been doing this a long time. I know how people interpret Genesis differently than I do and all that stuff. But they're wrong. Now let me tell you something. Here's what happens. People who want to be Christians but want to believe in evolution, what they do, rather than saying evolution's wrong, unfortunately, these Christians say what? The Bible's wrong. So now we have to reinterpret the Bible. That's where all that stuff comes from. Okay? Yeah. No, it's the other way around. Remember? Reason and logic don't judge the Bible, but the Bible judges reason and, lo- and besides, this isn't even good reason and logic. That's the, pro- that's the real problem. If there was really hardcore proof for evolution, that would put me in a tough spot. Because that's not what the Bible teaches. But thank God, there is no hardcore evidence for evolution, so I'm not in a tough spot at all. Okay, so we're going to look at Genesis, and we're going to run through some verses here. Let's start at verse 5, and you'll get the point before I even tell you. Verse 5, God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening was morning, the first day. Now, some people say, well, you know, Genesis doesn't tell us what a day is. Excuse me? Now, if you're gonna read this carefully, do you have a definition of a day there? What's the definition of a day in verse 5? He got light and darkness, even calls it what? Night and, day and day. night and day. Somebody should put music to that night and day. That'd be a good song. Yeah. You, you see? By the way, another quick side note, I said about people change the Bible. There's a very famous liberal German theologian called Rudolf Bultmann. I doubt if anybody here heard of him. He was very honest. This is what he said, this famous liberal German theologian. He would agree with Pastor Lastman. That's what the Bible says. But then here's where his integrity would come in. Yeah, Pastor Lastman's right. This famous German uh, uh, theologian, liberal, would agree with me. But then he would go and say, of course, we don't believe that anymore because we're modern people. Do you understand my point? He's at least being what? He's being honest. He said, yeah, he's not trying to horse around the text, which other people try. No, that's what it says, all right. But, of course, we're modern people. We don't believe that. Other people don't have integrity. They want to force their evolutionary views on what? The biblical text. Okay, so you see, you have everything you need for night and day right there. Now I want you to go to uh, verse 13. No, ver- verse 8, pardon me, verse 8. You'll see the point. God called the expanse sky, and there was evening in the morning. There was what? The second day. Then go to verse uh, 13. Skip down to 13. There was evening and there was morning the third day. Go to verse 19. There was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And finally, verse 31. Find 31, a little bit farther down. 31, a little bit farther. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good, which we'll get back to with the fall into sin next week. And there was evening and morning, there was the sixth day. Now, any fair-minded, reasonable person... Yeah, first day, second day, third day, fourth yeah, It's like, well, duh. Yeah. And there's a couple other things I could say, but I'm running out of time. For example, in the Bible, okay, an ordinal number, ordinal means first, second, third, fourth, fifth, where we have it, is never used figuratively in the, in the Bible. Never. Now, are sometimes numbers used figuratively in the Bible? Yes, but never an ordinal number, first, second, third. Whenever an ordinal number is used, first, second, third, fourth, it's always literal. So there's every reason to believe that God did this. Now, here's the question. You've already learned a little bit about God tonight. If God wanted to make the world in six days, could he do it? Exactly. Of course he could. Now, there was a very famous early church uh, father that I have a lot of respect for, probably the greatest Western theologian that ever lived, lived in the 4th century, a little bit into the uh, 5th century, so that would be the 300s and 400s. His name is Augustine or Augustine. You heard of him? He believed something I don't believe. He put so much emphasis on God's power, he thought that God made the world, there it is, which is the exact opposite of evolution. Now, I don't agree with, I don't agree with Augustine, just like I don't agree with evolution, because it's not a question of what, what could God do, but the question is, what did he do? And the only place we're told what he did is, and who alone was there at the creation? If we're going to accept any of this as halfway true, only God was there. Only God was there. So I, I believe what the Bible says on the information I've given you because there's not hardcore evidence for evolution. It's a heated debate. I believe with Phil Johnson, whether it's five years or 20 years, all the evidence will just bring Darwinian evolution down eventually under the sheer weight of evidence. And the Bible is very clear uh, about this. Now, one other thing I want to say is uh, evolution is actually against the gospel. I'll show you this real quick. So Watch the clock there. The next page is going to go pretty quick, so I'm not too worried about the next page as we can get through the rest of this page. Um, the teaching of evolution is against creation. There's no question about that. Oh, what did I do with it again? Oh, there it is. Okay. Evolution is not only against creation, which is the main thing you hear about. Okay? But what we're going to find out next week, you and I are going to talk about the fall into sin. Now, wait a minute. I'm going to teach you next week that God created a perfect world. Now, in any understanding of Darwinian evolution, was that a perfect world as things have been evolving? The answer is no. Well, that's going to contradict the whole sense of human nature because I'm going to tell you that mankind started out perfect and sinless and then what? Fell. Okay. Evolution basically says what? We started out down here and what's happening? See, we're going the opposite direction. Just wait around long enough, we'll be God. So it's this counters the whole If you believe in evolution, when did man become man? When did he become distinct from the animals? When did he get a soul? What's the image of God if he, in an evolutionary system? If all kinds of... And besides that, in evolution, evolution naturally understands death as part of the whole evolutionary process, isn't it? According to the Bible, there was no death when God created the world. It was perfect. And I'm going to teach you what brought death into the world was... Sin. Rebellion against God. So you see what's at stake here is not just creation, but the whole view of humanity and who we are and what happened. And then the last point is the whole idea about a Savior. In the biblical view of creation and fall, we need a Savior, and we've got one. What's the Savior in the view of evolution? Evolution. So there's all kinds of problems associated with this besides just the creation account itself. Okay, well, let's, uh, let's look at what we've learned here so far. From this we learned under six. From this we learned all things were made by God. He created them, calling them into existence out of nothing, and he did it in six days. All right, now, how did God create man? Let's do this, uh, uh, and like I say, the next page is going to go pretty quick. Um, How did God create man? Genesis 2, 7. The Lord God formed the man out of the dust or the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Look how majestic that is. I hope all of you can see. I don't know what you believe, but see, look how majestic that is compared to we evolved from some slime pool someplace up through the evolutionary scale and our immediate relatives are apes and monkeys and gorillas. Look how, look how wonderfully distinguished this is. You see, immediately, human beings are set apart from the animal world. With the animals, God just said, let there be chickens, let there be horses, let there be this. Ah, but not with man. The first man, there was only one, not a whole bunch of them. He created a whole bunch of cows and hippopotamuses and all that, but only one man. And he formed him out of the dust of the ground. And the reason this is interesting is two reasons. The, the name Adam, Adam got his name from where he was created. The Hebrew word for ground, from where Adam came from, is Adama. That's why he's called Adam. In Hebrew, it means he was made from the dirt. And the second thing is, it shows his lowly nature. Okay, Because then God, and we don't know how he did this, anthropomorphism, God himself, unlike the animals, breathes life into this creature called Adam. And that shows you the glory of man. So in the dirt, you see the lowliness of man. But with God breathing his spirit into him, you see the dignity of man in contrast to animals. And then, of course, what we're going to hear next week, Adam and Eve fall into sin. Sin brings death into the world. And Adam will hear, from dust you were made, to dust you'll return. That's death. and We'll talk about that. And, but we're going to hear about a promise of a Savior too. Okay, so he's created from the dust to the ground. God breathes life into him and made, as we see in Genesis 1.27, the next Bible passage, God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him. Now, um, the image of God is not physical. And you already know enough about the Bible to know that. If Adam and Eve were created in the, in the image of God, it can't mean physical because? Because what? God has no physical body. So it doesn't mean that Adam and Eve physically look like God. No, when you do this, and we're going to do the passages in just a minute in the New Testament, the image of God is not a physical reality. It's a spiritual reality. The image of God, in contrast to the animals, is human beings were created by God to have an intimate, loving relationship with Him. Indeed, Adam and Eve are put in charge of the whole earth all the animals and everything to have dominion over them and so it means the image of God is they knew God perfectly loved God perfectly lived for God perfectly although it didn't last very long as we're going to get to next week that's the image so let's look at the next page and I'll try to show you this next page from, from a God for a man's body and gave him a rational soul. Man was made in the image of God. This means that man resembled God in knowledge and holiness. He knew God was, remember the word knew, was altogether happy in such knowledge. His will was in perfect harmony with God's will. Now we're going to look at those passages, but let me tell you what we're going to look for. They are created in the image of God. They know God, love God. Everything's hunky-dory. They're sinless, perfect. Everything's wonderful. They're going to rebel against God next week. We're going to see them. And by rebelling against God, they lose the image they're not going to be holy and sinless. They're not going to know. People are going to be born into the world now. We'll talk about this. People are now going to be born in the world, not as holy, but as sinners. They're going to be born in the world, not knowing God, but being ignorant of God. Okay, That's what we're going to see. But what we're going to look at these two passages, in Jesus Christ, and you stay with me, this 15-week journey, when we have faith in Jesus Christ, this image of God, knowing God, loving God, living for God, now listen carefully, is partially put back on in this life. Uh, see if anybody's with me. When do you think the image of God will be fully restored? Who said it? At the resurrection. At the resurrection, we'll go full circle. But in Jesus Christ, this image of God, knowing God, loving God, living for God, is being partially restored through faith in Christ. And we'll talk about that in Lesson 8, Under Good Works and Godly Living. Okay, let's look up those passages to show you that that's the image of God. First one is Colossians 3.10. Maybe just to put a little bit in context, I can't explain everything, I just want you to see the punchline, but let's start at verse 5, put a little bit in the context for you here, so it's not interrupted in the middle of a sentence. He's talking to Christians now about godly living. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. And we'll talk about that in lesson 8 about living for God. "...sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. But now you must rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other." Now here we go. "...since you have taken off your old self with its practices and put on the new self, that means the Christian, which is being renewed in the knowledge and image of its Creator." So you see, this is a spiritual reality that's being put on in Christ now. Now let's go to the other one. Ephesians, turn to your left. Ephesians 4, 24. And we'll start at verse 20. We're going to put a little bit in the context again. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught of him in the adult information class. In accordance with the truth that's in Jesus, verse 22, you were taught with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. Verse 23, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and put in the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So in those two Bible passages, we have the word image and likeness. Image and likeness of God. So they're created in the image of God. They're sinless, holy. They know God perfectly. They don't have to be taught about God. They've got an intimate relationship with God and that's what's going to be so awesome next week in a sad way we're going to see what they had is all going to be lost we'll talk about that next week okay number eight what does God still do for us and all that he created Hebrews 1 3 he upholds the universe by his word of power in other words the Bible teaches God not only creates the world who do you think keeps the universe going God. Anybody ever hear of uh, here? You don't hear much about it anymore. But in the, when our uh, forefathers were establishing America, it was a very really popular teaching. Anybody here ever hear of deism? Yeah, deism is kind of like the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man, and that's about it. Okay, and deism taught that God created the world, and then He went off to do other things. He's not interested in you and what you're doing or anything. No, he's not involved in his creation. You know, he's like an absentee landlord. He's off doing marvelous things. But that's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible, he not created the world. He keeps this world going. He's intimately involved in it. Please. I'm not sure. That's, that's, I'm not an expert in that area. I like a little early American history, but I'm not an expert. I know that I've heard and read some things that some of our early forefathers in America here were not really what we'd call orthodox Christians, but they were deists and things like that. Nice guys, because there's basically moralism. I'm not sure. My educated guess, probably. He's probably a deist. Now, um, here's the point. When science talks about all these laws of science, from a Christian biblical standpoint, said, say, well, scientists are simply describing in scientific terms what they see God doing. You know? Now, this is what's so important because in a scientific world, it's so easy to get rid of God. Ah, oh, we don't need God anymore. We've got all these scientific laws. Well, what do you think all these scientific laws are? It's simply God at, at work, and you little peeny human beings in the universe have simply put a description on it. That's God working. It's God that keeps the earth going around the sun. You, know, you can describe it in scientific terms if you want, but that's God working. You're just describing his work. Uh, Psalm 145, 15 and 16. This is uh, the psalmist. The eyes of all wait upon thee, talking to God. Thou givest them their meat in due season. Thou openest thy hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. In other words, it's God who's the source of all good things that we have. You know, we just kind of take it for granted. I teach catechism classes, 7th uh, grade here, and I say uh, I can say things like to uh, a 7th grader, uh, well, where does all our food come from? Safeway? <laughs> well, that's true, isn't it? But a more sophisticated answer is not Safeway, right? Where does Safeway get all their food? Well, you and I know there's a huge, convoluted, long process, right? To get everything to... Safeway or Albertsons or QFC, whatever you want. I don't show favoritism. Yeah, And we just take it for what, though? For granted until it doesn't work. And now we're real hungry, aren't we? You see how we can always take things for granted? We'll be talking about that every once in a while in this class, too. We don't miss something until we don't have Think about those poor people in New Orleans. I bet they started thinking about their source of food. They just couldn't go down to Safeway anymore, could they? Yeah. So God is the source of all of our good blessings that we have, and the psalmist is acknowledging that. Some, some Christians over the centuries have used that as a table prayer, maybe in a newer ver- version. That's King James. Ah, this is Jesus in Matthew 10. What an awesome passage. This is Jesus speaking. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, meaning in his day, and not one of them will fall to the ground without your Father's will? Let's pause there. Remember how I said the real God is not a deus God? A deus God gets things running, and then he goes off and does other things? Look what, look what Jesus says. Well, I took it off the board again, but remember Jesus came in the world. He gives us information about God. Jesus says, ah, you want to know how involved God is in this world? A sparrow doesn't fall to the ground, not only without his knowledge. No, well, that's not what it says. Without his what? His will. That's how involved God is in the world. But it gets even more awesome and more personal for you and me because what else does Jesus say Then as he goes on? But even the hairs of your head are all what? Numbered. Now, with some of us, that's not a very big deal. (laughs) Others of you, that's maybe a challenge. What's interesting about this passage, and I uh, only understood it years ago, Jesus isn't saying God knows how many hairs are in your head. I mean, that would be awesome enough, wouldn't it? What he's saying is every hair has a number. That's how involved the creator is with his creation. Not a sparrow. And he uses the word sparrow on purpose. Why? Because a sparrow in the big picture is kind of what? Insignificant. Not even an insignificant sparrow falls to the ground, not only without his knowledge, but without his will. And all the hairs of your head all have a number. That's how involved and that's how much God cares. Now, notice here comes the punchline from Jesus now, because what does he say after he says this? Fear not, therefore, you have more value than many sparrows. I can hardly say that without choking up. In other words, if God knows you and me this intimately and cares about us this intimately, coupled with the fact, I took it off, that he put his son on the cross for us, and what we're going to learn about what Christmas is, he's so intimately involved in this creation, what we're going to learn Christmas, he became one of us. He became one of us. To save us from the mess that we're going to learn about next week. That's how involved the Creator is in his creation. And then Genesis 50:20. This is Joseph speaking. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. This is the story of Joseph. Now let me tell you this story. Some of you do remember the story of Joseph and the coat of many colors? Right? Their father was Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. One of the sons was Joseph. And Joseph was daddy's favorite. Isn't that interesting? Things don't change sometimes. Joseph was daddy's favorite. And so... Jacob made Joseph this coat of many colors, okay? And one day, while the other brothers were out watching the flock miles away, Jacob told Joseph, you know, you need to take some refreshments to your brother. So he goes out there, you know, with whatever food and drink, and he's going out there, and the brothers see him coming, see? Now well, here comes Joseph, daddy's favorite, okay? Well, what they do, we read in the story, they beat him up. Sibling rivalry. And they put him down to a pit. they said, oh, man, now we're in trouble. Yeah, he's going to go home and tell daddy what we did. You know, this is going to be real bad. So one of the brothers says, well, why won't kill him? (laughs) Okay, we'll kill him. And one of the brothers said, oh, no, no, we can't do that. You know, there's always somebody in there that's got a conscience, right? Can't kill him. Okay. And so what happens then, a caravan, the Midianites come along. And they were in the business of slave trade. Okay. Say, ah, this is what we're going to do. We're going to sell Joseph off to these slave traders. We'll take his coat of many colors. We're going to strip it all up, you know, and put some lamb's blood on it and tell daddy, oh, daddy, you know, Joseph came out to give us food and drink. Oh, when he was on the way home, he was attacked by this lion, and this is all that's left. That's what he did. So, okay, so, of course, dad's in deep, profound grief and mourning, right? And Joseph is off to Egypt. Joseph ends up as a house servant in the home of an Egyptian army officer. Now, of course, the Egyptian army officer is out fighting battles all the time. That means his wife is left behind. And we're told, this is almost like a soap opera. You've got to read this. It's in Genesis. We're told, and I'm going to paraphrase a little bit, Joseph was a hunk. And Potiphar's wife noticed this. Okay, now today we'd call this sexual harassment because she's the mistress of the home, right? She's the powerful one. He's a house servant. Desperate housewives. housewives. Okay, yeah, that's what I should see. Nothing's new. Nothing's new. Anyway, she says, (coughs) "Sleep with me." And Joseph, being a good Christian boy, to put Old Testament language there. Says, no, I can't do that. That'd be sinning against my God. Okay, so he does the right thing, right? So here here we're back to suffering. So he does the right thing, so he's going to be rewarded for doing the right thing, right? No, she cries rape. Accuses this innocent man of rape. Okay, so he goes off to prison. So he goes down to prison and he's there for several years. Now, here's a quick side note. You know, you and me, we'd probably be down there and say, Well, where's this God who's supposed to love me so much? You know, every hair of my head's numbered? Where is he? you ever said stuff like that? I have. Okay. So there's for a couple of years. Well, what happens, he's down there and there's a baker and a cupbearer down there for the king, for the pharaoh. And they're both down there because they got in trouble with the pharaoh. And Joseph interprets their dreams. One of them, he says, is going to be executed. The other one's going to be restored to the pharaoh's service. Boy, that's exactly what happens. The one is executed. The one is going to be restored to the pharaoh's court to service. And Joseph says, Hey... When you go up there, would you remember me that I'm down here and talk to the pharaoh? Oh, sure, I will. Forgets all about him. One day, the pharaoh himself has a dream, and I won't go into all the dream right now. He has a dream, and he can't get anybody of his anybody in his court to properly interpret the dream. And so, so the cupbearer says, "Oh, excuse me, uh, your Majesty, I have to confess my shortcomings today." There's a man down in prison that interpreted these dreams, da, da 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 Maybe he can interpret your dreams. Well, bring him up. So they bring Joseph up, and the dream that he interpreted was there's going to be seven years of, of bountiful crops followed by seven years of famine. The point is, those seven years of bountiful crops, you better store up the the the, the food houses because the seven years of tough times are going to come. Well, what happens is Uh, the Pharaoh puts Joseph in charge of all this. Hey, good. Come out of prison. You're my right-hand man. He becomes the second most powerful man in all of Egypt. Seven years of bounty. Boy, the barns are full. Then the seven years of famine come. Meanwhile, back over where Joseph's family is, the famine hit them too, not just Egypt. It hit uh, 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 their, their land as well. And they hear Egypt has lots of food. So, Jacob, the father, says, why don't you boys go over to Egypt and see if you can get us some food? So they go over there. Okay? And they come into this beautiful palace. And guess who they're standing before? Joseph, their brother. But they don't recognize him. A, they think he's dead. B, it's been a long time ago, years, years and years. And C, he's dressed like a Egyptian royalty. They don't recognize him, okay? And finally, to make a long story short, what finally happens, he says to them, I'm your brother Joseph, and they make a collective, oh boy, we're in trouble now. And this is where Joseph says, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You get the point? And this is what we Christians believe. And there's other Bible passages. This is just an example. To be a real Christian, he had to suffer, didn't he? But in the long run, did God bring good out of bad? Yes, he did. And that's what often we Christians see too as we go through. Often we Christians suffer and see bad things. But sooner or later, maybe we see something good that came out of this band. And that's what happened. so, Joseph brings his whole family from the Holy Land over to Egypt, okay? And that's how the Israelites got in Egypt, okay? Because the 12 sons of Jacob turned into the 12 tribes of Israel. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. And so then, that's how, 450 years later, after they were enslaved because after a while the pharaohs forgot about Joseph. And they enslaved the people because they were a threat to them in numbers. But that's how they got into Egypt so that 450 years later, Charlton Heston could take them out into the Holy Land. (laughs) Yeah. So this is the way God works in life. Let's do our last question for the day and then we'll wrap it up. What do we owe our Heavenly Father for all these things? Genesis thirty-two ten. This is, by the way, Jacob. I was just talking about Jacob. I'm not worthy of the least of the steadfast love and all the faithfulness which you have shown your servant. So we're never worthy of what God gives to us. If you don't understand that now, I'll try to make it clear as we go through the 15 weeks. Psalm 118. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord for he is good because his mercy endures forever. Sometimes Christians use that as a table prayer too. In other words, we are to give thanks to God for all the good instead of simply taking it for what? For granted. First Peter five seven. Throw all your worries on Him. Why? Because He cares for you. Psalm one hundred and sixteen. What shall I render to the Lord for all His bounty to me? So from these we learn we should acknowledge our unworthiness, thank God, trust in Him, and serve and obey Him. So what do you think?
1: Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or follow me on Twitter or in there at pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.